Hey guys, today I have my friend April Staples and uh, you want to give a little introduction about yourself? Sure. Um, awesome. Thanks for having me here today, Kendall. I'm pretty excited. Um, so I'm officially now Dr. April Staples, which is pretty awesome. Um, I just finished my long journey of education in psychology. And so uh, that part is complete. But now I'm in the process of finishing up some postdoctoral clinical hours. Um, going to get that started and eventually move into full licensure as a psychologist um, in the state of Texas. So um, pretty excited about that. But over the last five years, I've been in a faculty, full-time faculty, and then an adjunct faculty in psychology, teaching biological psychology, human development, and introduction to psychology, which introduction really is a fun one because you're doing history and all the different theories and it's just a broad, you know, range of all things psychology. So overall, I've spent, you know, 10 years of my life learning about humans and my own interests are in religion as somebody who grew up uh, in the church and somebody whose grandfather was a Pentecostal evangelical pastor um, and, you know, philosophy and, uh, you know, psychoanalysis. So that's how we met Kendall and what brings us here today. Yeah. I'm super excited to have you on. Um, sorry, Dr. April Sable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, you know, obviously I'm really excited. Uh, all the things that uh, you've gone into, major props. Obviously, I know how hard grad school is. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so major props to you. And then, of course, everything you're interested in, I am also interested. And in. I think that, you know, your background and your um, education will give you a huge advantage in, in uh, discussing these things today. Yeah, awesome. So... I, um, you know, when you and I talked about doing this episode, uh, one of the things that we talked about was I actually have three children. So my children are 15. I can't believe I have a 15-year-old. I feel way too young for that. But uh, I have a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 9-year-old. And so being a, you know, a psychologist and, you know, Working in my my you know pre-doctoral hours with you know, I have two thousand hours just sitting with kids and adults and every population you can think of, um, and during that process, you know, I started thinking and learning and seeing a lot of things that I had never seen before because you're just getting such a wide range of people, and so that leads mm. you as a parent to look at your own kids and be like, man, what are what are all the things I've been missing here and what are the things I can do better and, and where are the places I need to heal, you know? Um, and so my, my healing as it related to my own childhood, you know, was largely related to my connection with God and religion. And so that kind of started my whole process, I guess, with an egg, not a big fan of the word deconstruction, but I guess it's the best word we have now. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of, I guess, dismantling the framework that I was given um, as a kid. And, and so trying to give my kids a different framework for spirituality um, has been really important for me. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. 
Yeah. Yeah. I guess just a little bit back background. Uh, we were talking about uh, my episode with Trace Bell and just how interesting it was that, you know, his dad being a megachurch pastor, um, didn't, um, raise him, um, that they had to be a Christian and that he had to go to church. And, um, so yeah, we just kind of wanted to zero in on that and, um, you know, how, how do we raise, um, kids after, um, going through our own faith journey and, you know, deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you gave a little bit, but did you want to give a little bit more introduction, um, or, or uh, insight into your own, uh, religious upbringing? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up, I'm Native American, and I grew up on a reservation in California. And on that reservation, um, there was a, a little church that was set up, you know, by, um, you know, I, colonizers who were coming in to try to convert, you know, Native people to the faith. Um, and my family ended up being those people who eventually converted. And so with that conversion, you know, one, we lost all of our indigenous spirituality. Um, when I was growing up, you know, I was often told things like, we don't do that. It's demonic, right? We, we're not going to engage in these spiritual practices that are now, you know, demonic, even though they were part of our history and our culture. And as part of the conversion, my grandfather became a pastor. Um, and I will say that, you know, nothing is black and white, right? Um, wherever there's, there's gray. For my grandparents, the, the faith that they came into was transformative. Uh, my grandfather struggled with um, alcohol use disorder, and his conversion led to a completely different whole life. Um, and I think for him, um, the structure of you know, the faith was really beneficial for his psychology and, and that gave him per, a new purpose and a new way of being able to make meaning in the world. Um, but it was a faith that was very harsh. And so the faith that I grew up in, um, in the churches that I went to were very much condemnation, hellfire brimstone. It was very much like you can lose your salvation and God is just this person in the sky that is always watching you and not in like a loving, <laughs> doting kind of way, but like waiting to strike mm. you down. And I think probably the best way I can characterize um, how my, my grandparents adored their God and, and worshipped him and loved him and, and were transformed by that God. Um, but at the same time, they were so fearful of that God as well. And that fear was, you know, really transferred into us as children. Um, you know, perfect example is, you know, when I was a kid uh, for Halloween one year, my grandparents got all me and my cousins and and had us watch the Left Behind movie. <laughs> I don't know. It was like the old left behind where there's like people getting their heads cut off and oh, man. you know i was like maybe <laughs> 10 years old i don't know i was a kid it was pretty traumatizing but you know that was one of the first times where it was like you watch this movie about how 
you know, if you deny Christ, you're going to get your head cut off and, you know, all these people are going to disappear. And, and then at the end of it, it's like, and Jesus loves you. Would you like to accept him in your heart? (laughs) And so, um, they had beautiful intentions. You know, I love my grandparents dearly. There's, they were, they're, you know, they're no longer with us, but you know, they were the most, you know, loving, beautiful people I know. And they did what they felt in their heart was necessary for my soul. Right. So I don't, I'm not angry with them about it or anything like that, but I knew early on that this was not a God that felt loving. Mm. And this was not a God that made sense to me. And so early on, I would ask questions like, um, if God loves you, why would he send you to burn in hell forever? That doesn't sound very loving. And a lot of times I got the, well, God's ways are not our ways. And, you know, you can, you can ask God when you get to heaven, mm-hmm. you know. So there wasn't a lot of answers. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a really curious kid. So I just kind of got, you know, brushed off a Not lot. very satisfactory. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was never really satisfactory. And then at uh, 16 years old, um, my brother was in a, a tragic car accident, unexpected car accident. He was 17. I was 16. Oh. Uh, we were in the same grade together, very, very close. Um, and he and his girlfriend tragically passed away in a car accident. And so at 16 years old, I am looking into a coffin where mm-hmm. my dead brother is, right? And at that moment, I'm thinking to myself, I am not really sure what I think about God, because what I know about God is he's pretty awful. You know, mm-hmm. he he um, now wants to take away my salvation and damn me to hell. And now my brother is laying here gone forever. Um, so I went into kind of a whole existential crisis at that time. I would say that was probably the beginning of really deconstructing everything. Um, I stopped going to church. Um, you know, my whole family kind of just fell apart in grief at that time because, you know, we were so young. My brother was 17 and I left to go to college two years later and I went, uh, to Santa Cruz, which is Santa Cruz, California, which is one of the most, um, liberal, expansive, artistic, beautiful places, you know, um, in the world. And I was exposed to a lot of people that I, you know, would have never been exposed to on my little reservation in the mountains in California. Mm, culture shock. Right. It was, a, it, it was definitely a culture shock. Um, but the fear that I was grown, grown up with of God's watching you and you're sinning and you shouldn't be talking to these people and you shouldn't be exploring these things. You shouldn't be asking these questions. Mm. Um, it actually, in psychology, we call this kind of a reaction formation where you have an extreme reaction towards people who are not like you, but you mm-hmm. want to be them. <laughs> so because you are one of them, you hate them. So it's a way for you to kind of, you know, make yourself, it's a defense. It helps you Mm -hmm. feel better. So Mm -hmm. this was my like 
real dogmatic phase of my mm. faith. Um, I was scared. And so that caused me to just adopt even a more extreme version of the faith I had. It was like my brain just couldn't figure out, you know, I don't believe in this God, but also this culture shock is extreme. And mm. so I just regressed back to what I knew. And when I regressed back to what I knew, it was a lot more dogmatic because it made me feel safe. And so eventually, I thankfully, after being away at college over those four, four years, you meet beautiful people and have new experiences. And so the fear started to dissipate and my curiosity came back and, and the deconstruction process started again. And as you're aware, the process of seeking and evolving is kind of just like that. It's this up and down and up and down. And you feel like, what do I believe in? And what is even happening here? Um, and so, yeah, that led to me choosing psychology as, as a major while I was in college. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how my background started with just really digging deep into philosophy and religion and psychology. Oh, what a story. Yeah. Um, I had a question. Um, do you think that that dogmatic stage, do you think that that is further along the path of faith or is that um, backsliding as you know, yeah. Christian right. faith or is that, is that just not really, uh, you can't really put it like a linear kind of thing? Yeah, I don't think it's linear at all. I think for me, I mean, I, obviously I can only speak for me personally. I think for me, it was 100% a reaction to help my fear of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, because I was at this point where I was going to like lose myself in this abyss of all that I could be or maybe all that I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And that was really scary as a a 19 year old kid, you know, mm. especially because my family was still very, um, you know, Pentecostal fundamentalist type biblical literalism. And so if I let myself go down this road, um, I might lose my family, mm. you know, I, I don't think they would have ever, you know, just disowned me or anything like that. My family was never, um, that to that degree, but I would have heard very mm -hmm. clearly how they felt about the direction I was going, you know, they weren't there. My family are not very, uh, meek people. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, they, if they don't like something, you're going to mm -hmm. know they don't, that, that they don't like it. Um, right. and so for me, it was a reaction. I, I mm -hmm. think for a lot of people, they probably do. They start to question, they start to have doubts. They start to go down the road of maybe, maybe everything I've been told to believe isn't the truth sure. um, and that becomes scary and so then i think the automatic reaction is to revert back to a stronger degree to the beliefs that did give them comfort prior to that questioning mm. yeah that's yeah. really good insight yeah um yeah so do you want to talk about um you know about raising children and how you do that now but you know, yeah absolutely so so let's fast forward. Um, you know, I'm 39 now. Um, that was, you know, 20 years ago. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> and so uh, throughout, 
you know, I had my kids when I was my first child when I was 24. Um, and so it was still pretty, I was still really young um, and still trying to figure things out. And so I ended up joining a non-denominational church that was a lot more progressive. Um, it was still, I think, very, um, I guess, kind of standard evangelical teachings, but not so much hellfire brimstone. It wasn't really any hell. It was a lot of a lot more grace. It was a lot more love. It was a lot more of you know the the gospel, so to speak. Um, and that was a level at that point that I was comfortable with. Um, I wasn't quite yet to the point of being able to leave Christianity or step outside and look at other things. So my process was really gradual. And I think that's the really important thing, I think, for a lot of people to understand is sometimes we have a tendency to to go extreme in mm. the opposite direction, right. where I was this you know, really dogmatic Christian. Now I'm going to be this really dogmatic atheist. But you lose so much opportunity to get to know yourself and be kind to yourself and be gracious to yourself in the process of discovery. And so for me, it was a process of trying different churches that were just a little step over my comfort level. Mm. You know, we kind of call this like graded exposure. It's kind of like an exposure therapy where you're slowly introducing your nervous system really to new ideas mm -hmm. um, because an automatic response for your nervous system is to protect you mm -hmm. um, and to try to you know hide and and run away and so I kind of allowed myself time and in the meantime I'm told that my children right are gonna go to hell if they are not saved or mm -hmm. they're not taught the faith or and there is that fear. I, it took me a long time to deconstruct hell, but mm. I knew that I didn't want to give that fear to my children. Mm. That was a very clear for me at the beginning was I, I cannot allow my children to have the fear that I had growing up because when I was growing up, it was like I would be trying to go to bed at night and I would have fear that the devil was going to get me when I was asleep or, you know, that I was going to die and go to hell because I listened to you know, some music on the radio that wasn't, you know, Christian music. And it just led to almost a uh, scrupulosity where I'm constantly checking myself if I'm sinning all day mm. long. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Jesus, forgive me my sins. Uh, sorry I listened to that music. Sorry I was, wasn't nice to that person. Sorry, uh, you know, all day long to where I'm not even living life. I'm just constantly checking in you know, with mm. myself. And it's just not healthy. It's just, you're living in constant anxiety. And mm. I knew that was not a healthy psychology for my mm. children to give, to gift to them. And so I had to learn a new way. And so, uh, I, we, we did continue to go to church with our children. Um, and now our children, um, they did attend a, a Christian school, but it was a school that, um, was a hybrid program. So they would go Tuesdays and Thursdays. And one of the things that we decided to do with our children was introduce them to every other faith. And so even though we wanted to give them a, a framework or a language that they could experience God within, 
the language we wanted to give, we wanted to give them as many languages as possible. Mm. Um, and so we, my, it's kind of funny because like for Christmas uh, this year, we actually read um, some stories about the birth of Christ from the Quran. And what does the Quran say about Mary and where, mm-hmm. you know, where does Mary get birth? And one of the coolest things about the Quran is that um, Jesus actually speaks as a baby. Like they don't oh, believe wow. that he's like a prophet. Right. And so um, there's actually a story of Jesus speaking as a baby. And like, that's his first miracle. And so my kids have this wide range of spiritual knowledge and to them, there's just one source. Like there's only God, whatever that is. Um, and they can connect to God through whatever story is the most meaningful to them. And I found that as we've introduced them to Buddhism and Hinduism, like we have, we have books in our house, like the Veda and the Quran and the Bible. And, um, we do, we read poetry. Um, they themselves are curious about other cultures and they're curious about God and they're curious about, you know, spirit, their own spirituality and connecting to that. And I found that because we weren't dogmatic about anything, it led to an intuitive seeking Mm. on their own. Um, and that's been amazing to witness right because i'm like wow i'm kind of healing my inner child here right right yeah yeah so it i resonated with your um you know trace bell episode um, where he talked about you know his dad you know didn't force him to go to church um or you know necessarily believe the same things um and he himself came to a point of connecting with source in a way that was meaningful for him and i recognize for my own children that my job as their parent is to you know i guess to use a christian term to shepherd them to kind of give them some guardrails a, a simple framework for making meaning in this world um I recognized early on that with something like, you know, atheism, it's appears to me as something that is deconstructing all the time versus something that is looking to build. And so I wanted to, and I think that that can sometimes lead into nihilism, mm-hmm. um, which I have found myself in. So there's no judgment about that at all. If that's where anybody is. Um, I think there are some beautiful, I think there are, there are plenty of, of um, atheists who have meaningful, purposeful, impactful, beautiful lives. So I'm not even saying that, but for me with my children, I know the value from a psychological level of connecting to something greater than ourselves. And so I wanted to give them a healthy framework because psychologically we are wired to worship. We are wired to want to extend our, our talents and our worship and our gratitude towards something. And I wanted to give them a framework to do that in a healthy way Mm -hmm. um, without 
getting into dogma as much. And they're human. Right. They probably will. We all go through that dogmatic mm -hmm. stage. Um, but if I can try to introduce them to as many things as possible, maybe we can start with a little bit of humility. Yeah. 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 Um, I actually have a friend who is an atheist and he's a scientist. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to talk to him about religion and science and stuff like that. Because I think that he does have a sort of, um, you know, uh, something bigger than himself and a worship through science of the universe of the world. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're Christian, you, you know, you believe that God created that. And so, um, and then I think, you know, like me, I'm like Penitius, so God is within all things. So yeah. I think that even it, as atheist, he is still worshiping God in a sense, uh, yeah, to some degree. So it, it's interesting. Yeah, it's funny. I agree with you. Um, I don't really, uh, I, I think I posted something on my Instagram actually the other day about how, you know, scientists call it a placebo effect and Christians call it prayer right. and, you know, we, we all have our words, our language that we're mm -hmm. comfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody's really denying that there's something happening that we don't know. Mm -hmm. is ha there's a mystery. There's the mystery, mystery about the universe and, and the way that we decide the language we use to describe it, I think, is going to be dependent on our own unique individual selves. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a really beautiful, uh, so Carl Sagan, right, is an atheist and, and he's, he's amazing. Um, but his daughter actually wrote a book about ritual and um, meaning and um, how you can make meaning as mm. an atheist. It, there's nothing about being a Christian or being a part of a religion that makes your meaning making more meaningful than somebody who is not part of a religion. Um, so I hundred percent agree with you that we all have to figure out how to make meaning out of this experience. And I think for me, that was the most important thing for my children is um, as parents, we, we pass on our own experiences of meaning making to our children for me, the language I used to make meaning was Christianity and culturally, you know, especially living here in Texas, um, Christianity obviously is the primary cultural language mm -hmm. for making meaning. Um, and so I wanted to give, I knew my children were going to exp be exposed to that here, uh, you know, probably a more dogmatic version of Christianity here in Texas. Um, and so for me, it was really important for them not only to share my own um, meaning-making language, uh, but to also give them the ability to have conversations with people who have similar language, but maybe a completely different interpretation mm. of, of the Christianity gospel than they do. So, um, yeah, raising children can be really complicated, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. But we all use the language that we have and the tools that we have uh, to make meaning out of this experience. So that actually kind of leads me to a, a really good point that I did want to talk about, which is cognitive development in children. Um, so if you're cool yeah. with us moving to that, I, I can talk about that. Yeah. Well, let's whistle one thing um, that I, I can already I can hear. The, the crowds, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, there's always going to be haters. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. 
(laughs) But, you know, you talk about meaning making, but yeah. So how would you say, what would you say to those who are like, well, there is absolute truth and it's not just, you know, you can make up whatever meaning that you want. How would you Mm -hmm. have to? That's a good question. I think um, the answer that I could give to somebody who's going to ask me that question is not going to be sufficient for them. So. I think that that's a question they have to figure out for themselves. And I think Mm -hmm. that that is part of the meaning making process. And I hope that they can figure out what absolute truth is. Cause I certainly haven't figured that out myself. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, there, there's a dose of humility for you. Yeah. And a little little plug for my last episode. I think we we did go into it, which I mean, you would love because we talk about young and symbols and all that and how there is underlying truth, but it's not, so black and white or, or within uh, literal language, it's something that's beyond that. And so we have to hold our understanding of, of absolute truth loosely and yeah. realize that it's, it's kind of elusive <laughs> to some right. degree. Right, right. Well, I'm always reminded of like, you know, what is it? The, the Dunning-Kruger effect where, you know, when you're learning something you you reach this peak of knowledge where there's a sense a feeling that you've made it like mm-hmm. i know everything i am a mm-hmm. genius right? <laughs> um and some people stay at this peak where they feel like they know everything uh they feel like they do have absolute truth and then if you keep learning though if you keep if you keep going you're going to go back down the slope <laughs> into despair yeah it's where you recognize wait a minute like i thought i knew everything and suddenly i'm realizing i don't i don't actually know what's going on here i don't actually know anything and as you continue to seek you kind of start to slowly continue to gain more wisdom about this experience but i think any person who studies anything for an extensive amount of time comes out of it feeling like they don't know what's going on. <laughs> I have right. no idea what's going Look, on. The more I learn, the the more I really the more don't I, know. So. Right, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, you so, want to get back to the stages? Yeah. So in terms of child development, there's, you know, several theories. And the one that I'm going to kind of start with is just our cognitive development. And the most kind of widely known one is a a theory of cognitive development that was developed uh, by a guy named Piaget. And so his, and I'm probably saying his name incorrectly, um, but he developed this theory that as children age, they kind of go through these different stages. Now, keep in mind, some people skip stages. You know, there's criticisms about Piaget and how he underestimated children. Anybody's welcome to go, you know, kind of look at that stuff. But this is kind of a good framework to just start to think about how our cognitive development occurs throughout our life. And so when we're about zero to two years old, our only job really is to explore through our senses. So we're really kind of learning how to see, like, you know, how to hear, how, you know, touch, what is temperature like, 
Um, so you see, you know, toddlers are always like putting things in their mouth. Um, this is a sensory seeking behavior. They're kind of just trying to explore the world through their senses. They're living in the moment. Right. They're like, and <laughs> if you look at all the major faiths, all of them say be like a child, right? They're all like, explore, be, be as present right. as a child is. Like, are you really doing things again? <laughs> right. Are you really enjoying that cup of coffee? Because like, if you watch a kid eat like, you know, something delicious, they are like mm. fully <laughs> in it. Like watch a kid eat an orange. <laughs> they're not worried about the mess that they're making everywhere. It's well, like all over their clothes, yeah. all over their hands. Parents are just freaking out because it's <laughs> like they're getting sticky all over my house. I'm going to have to clean this, you uh -huh. know, um, but the kids are in it. They're fully mm -hmm. present. And then once we get through that sensory stage, we move on between, you know, from toddlerhood to maybe about seven, eight years old, and they start to create objects. And for those who are really interested in kind of psychoanalysis, this is like where your object development kind of starts to begin, where objects and images start to kind of have meaning. We start to create some logical reasoning. Um, and at this stage, we maybe can start to describe our emotions a little bit better. So you can ask like a seven-year-old, like, tell me why you're sad or, you know, what are the things that make you happy? And children at this stage are really cool um, because they animate inanimate objects. So mm. like a truck can now talk to you, right? And their toys are flying everywhere. So if you look at like um, Toy Story, right? Uh, uh, Andy is in the pre-operational stage of his cognitive development. He's like playing with all these toys. His toys are alive, right? So the world is literally magic at this stage. And eventually we lose our magic. You know, we we start to to recognize in the next stage that there are some concrete things about the universe like um, my toy truck isn't actually have feelings like I do, you know, or I can't just call my my plushie when I lose it and, you know, have it run up mm -hmm. and show up to me. And so they start to really engage in more um understanding about concrete things and they this is where we really begin to think logically and start the black and white thinking mm -hmm. like well that's a toy and it can't be a human or talk like a human anymore and um that's a tree and and you know not an animal and um so they start to have more i guess adult type thinking as they mm -hmm. get to 7 to 11 years old mm -hmm. And then the final stage is what we would call the formal operations, which is where we all end up eventually, hopefully, uh, which is abstract reasoning. So here they can start to think about probability and they can start to think about if I do this, what's going to happen in the future? So they can start to think about like future events. They can start to think about their past behaviors and start to feel bad about those now. So we start to develop the more opportunity to have, you know, anxieties and fears and worries and about our own experience. And when we look at this, you know, de cognitive development, we can see it overlap with moral development. Mm -hmm. 
And the moral development um, was developed by another psychologist uh, named Kohlberg. And what he did was he had kids answer these moral dilemmas, you know, he would give them stories and he recognized that the way they answered the question for the moral dilemma was dependent on their age. It was really dependent on their cognitive development and the answers or the reasons that they gave changed based on their age. And so for the moral development, we see that between the age of three and seven, moral reasoning tends to be based on reward and punishment. Hmm. It's very much, I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to do this. It's not like, I'm not going to steal that toy from that kid because I feel bad. I'm going to hurt that kid's feelings. It's like, no, I'm not going to steal it because I don't want to get in trouble. You know, Hmm. So well, it, because they're uh, inherently sinful, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's a self interest in avoiding punishment, and and I think you bring up a good point: is the lack of understanding of child development. I think has led a lot of parents to wrongfully assume that children have the brain development of adults, mm-hmm. and that children can reason the way that adults can reason. But they can't. They, it's just not possible. Um, the next stage is about 8 to 13. So this is that abstract kind of, you know, cognitive development where people are starting to have their own moral reasonings for the choices that they're making. Still, though, most of this is based on Law and order is good for the community. You know, I want to be a good boy or I want to be a good girl. or I want to be a good person because that's what's good. Most of us kind of live in this conventional morality. And then the final moral stage is the adult reasoning, the, you know, that there are social contracts that as humans, we are responsible for caring for the earth. We're responsible for caring for our community. We're responsible for caring for other people. Um, And if you reach the peak of that moral development, you end up getting to a universalism. And the universalism is the phase where there are some universal principles about justice and goodness and, and humanity. And it's rare for people to get there. The people who get there are like, you know, Rosa Parks um, saying this is an unjust law and I'm and I'm not going to follow it. Mm-hmm. That would be considered her being at that peak of universalism, understanding that there is a, a right, true, moral good and will it being willing to um, do something about that. So it takes an immense amount of bravery to do something like that. And the people who've reached that peak is very rare. Um, we we see that overlap with the stages of faith. And the stages of faith were developed by James Fowler, and people can can Google that. But the final stage of faith is universalism. It's recognizing oh. that there is no single way to experience God. Hmm. And it's very rare for people to get there because it feels scary to be in the mystery 
I think, indefinitely. And I don't know a good way to help people get there either. I think the best way that we have is to try to just be present with people wherever they're at in that stage of seeking. But recognizing that some people never leave the cognitive stage or the moral stage of just what's safe and what feels good and what feels right based on their social mm-hmm. um, you know, communities. It's a privilege to be able to have opinions that aren't going to lead to you losing your whole community. Mm-hmm. Good point. And I think a lot of people in privileged positions, especially living in an individualistic society like the United States, we don't recognize um, how much of a privilege it is to deconstruct. Mm-hmm. Um, most people who need their families to survive, they need their communities to be able to help them raise their children, to be able to get to work, to be able to do the things that they do. and. For them, the safest thing they can do is stay in that conventional level because that's where they can thrive and it's where they're safe. And so I think we have to honor people who are trying to take care of their basic Mm. needs and their psychological needs because it is a privilege to be able to deconstruct. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, way to call me out. (laughs) (laughs) No, that that was really good. Uh, Definitely great um, perspective and... um, yeah. 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 So I, I don't know. I feel like I'm talking a lot. Uh, no, I mean, I, it's, it's great. Um, okay. I guess one. So, so my question is, um, as kids are, you know, getting older and going through these stages of faith. Yeah. How, how does it impact how we talk about um, our faith with them at these different stages? Um, yeah. Because, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I, I hear sometimes online about parents talking about, you know, God through reconstruction or wanting their kids um, to not be so dogmatic and, and be more open. But it's like when they're, well, I mean, first of all, when they're young, they're not even going to have the ability to have these concepts. Right. And but, I think that's the first thing to remember is mm-hmm. you have to meet your kids where they're at. Right. So kids who are in this, you know, early stage they really aren't going to understand big abstract ideas. Mm -hmm. They're just not going to grasp it the way that you are as an adult. Um, So how can we introduce to them something spiritual or Mm -hmm. something about having a connection to something bigger than you are? I think love is the only way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you can give them stories, right? And a lot of people use their faith as the baseline to um, teach them about love. For us, you know, we love the story of Jesus and his love that he shared while he was on this earth. And humans thrive. We're storytellers. Mm-hmm. We get meaning through narrative. Right. And so finding a narrative, even a family narrative, you know, what is your family narrative that your children can hold on to and, and, and try to replicate in their life? Our, our family is X, Y, and Z, and, and that we've seen this through grandpa or grandma or, you know, historically we see 
you know, in my indigenous communities, obviously, talking about our ancestors and passing that on through narrative storytelling is so meaningful and impactful. It connects you to your history. And if we think of our biblical text in the same way, not just as sacred texts that are, you know, literal and it says what it means, all this kind of stuff. But if we think of them as narratives, a long narrative story that's being shared over the course of human history about how people experience God, then we can start to feel like we're participating in the story with them. And so children do a really good job of connecting to something greater through storytelling. And Mm -hmm. so finding the story that works for you to help your children understand these principles of love and joy and grace and patience and, you know, goodness, kindness, Um, give them a character, give them a story. You know, for some people, that's Jesus. For some people, that's Krishna. For some people, that's Muhammad. For some people, that's, you know, but there has to be a a human connection Mm -hmm. that they can anchor to, you know, or, and for children, a lot of times it's like, you know, they're, they're cartoon characters or they're, you know, they're plushies or mm-hmm. whatever it is that they can say, I want to be like that person mm-hmm. or I want to love like that person. I want to be kind like that person. Um, I don't think you really, you can obviously get into theology and doctrine and sin and all of that kind of stuff. If you're a Christian or whatever your religion is, they're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing is mm-hmm. uh, meeting them where they're at and trying to figure out what is the point I am trying to get to with my kid here? Am mm. I am I trying to raise somebody that knows how to love and how to be kind and how to be patient? How do I do that with this story? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that answer that is uh, my question about you know pe- people who have deconstructed and they're like you know the Bible's not um, inerrant or it's not all literal whatever, and so they worry about teaching their kids some of these things and they'll take it literal and then pick up some of the negative connotations from these stories. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is a fair fear to have. I I had the same fear of, oh man, like my kids are going to a Christian school. I don't know what version of faith Uh they're being taught there. Um, How do I know they're not going to come out of this with the same anxieties I had or, you know, or not. I I don't know. I think there's having a lot of discussions in your home with your children about what these stories mean to you is the best way, I guess, you can handle that fear. But ultimately, you can't control everything. (laughs) Um, You're not going to be able to. Um, And so the best thing you can do is to be present in your faith journey with your children because children the best example i can give is children learn what they live they don't learn what they're told necessarily and any parent will tell you that like you can tell your kid something to your blue in the face and then you watch them and they're actually just doing what you do and that's a lot of times what makes parents upset is um you know, their children are a mirror, probably mm-hmm. the best mirror we have of the way we interact and engage in the world. 
And so if we can be present in our own uncertainty, in our own insecurity, in our own doubts, in our own questions with our kids, then they learn that it's okay to have doubt. And they learn it's okay to ask questions. They learn it's okay um, to not know if you believe in God, to, to have their own opportunity to explore. So I think being mindful of our own fear and dogma can help us to allow our kids a safe place to grow in their curiosity about the divine. Mm. So do you think that, um, say a parent is, you know, telling your kids, I'm not sure if there's God, does that lead to a, a children's crisis of a nihilism or yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's actually interesting. So my youngest is nine and very early on, she asked me, she's probably seven and she said, mom, where would I be if I wasn't here? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think think children early on have this sense of this is weird. Like Mm -hmm. us being here is weird. Um, And it's up to us to just let them ask those questions. I think the instinct as a parent and just as a person in general is to want to try to provide answers. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because it makes us feel better because we don't necessarily want to deal with our own existential crisis. Um, And children have a way of like bringing us to the point of like existential crisis (laughs) because they just ask questions, you know, they don't, they don't have, I I think yet haven't experienced enough life to be scared by the questions. Um, So like, when my daughter asked that at age seven, I said, well, where do you think you would, where do you think Mm -hmm. you would be if you weren't here? Um, And she said, I don't know. And I said, that's a great question. I don't know if we'll ever know, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And then it was just like, she went and just went around, ran in the yard and started Uh kicking the ball. And the Uh question was over, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, One time she asked, what happens when we die? You know, uh, where do we go anywhere? And again, the instinct for a parent might be to be like, well, you're going to go to heaven, right? Mm -hmm. Or we're going to go be with God. But really get curious, I think, about what your kids are thinking. Like, well, where do you think we're going to go, you know? Um, And so I asked her that um, and she said, I don't know. I And I was really surprised by this because at this point we really hadn't talked about reincarnation or Mm -hmm. anything like that. And she goes, I think maybe we come back. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> like, where, what makes you think that, uh-huh. you know? Uh, and she's like, I don't know. Like, I just think, like, maybe we come back. Uh-huh. And I had never, at that point, she was seven. We weren't having mm-hmm. conversations about the afterlife mm-hmm. or anything like that. And there was just this intuitive sense from mm-hmm. her that death wasn't the end mm-hmm. um and i didn't i said well i think that would be really cool mm-hmm. you know and and then we left it at that mm-hmm. so you know i tried to leave space for mystery um mm-hmm. obviously 
we're going to pass down our beliefs. We're going to pass down the things we think are important. There's nothing wrong with telling your children there's a heaven or telling them that they're following whatever family, you know, faith that you have. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's not going to lead to anything negatively, psychologically or anything like that. I think faiths and religions in general were developed to ease our existential fears. Mm. So if believing in heaven is going to help your psychological health, then believe in heaven. That's great. That's wonderful. And and I hope, I have hope that um, whatever it is you believe is real for you, that it will manifest in the way you, you hope it will. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, guiding your children in the direction that you feel is most meaningful. We do that with everything else. So, mm-hmm. and, you know, of course we're going to do that with our faiths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, by being open and allowing these questions and allowing um, an uncertainty yeah. actually helps our, you know, children to not go through crises later because they never got so strict in the way they believed and, things have to be a certain way that when that's challenged, you know, everything falls apart to them. Yeah. I think one of the most important things is for me as a parent, this wasn't something that was natural to me because of the way that I was raised in my faith. So I got extensive therapy. I have my own therapist Um, my therapist is somebody who actually has a master's in divinity as well. So he's a, you know, licensed counselor as well as, um, understands, you know, spirituality and, you know, um, things of that nature. And I wrestled a lot with him, um, in my own process so that I wouldn't have to wrestle with my kids in that process. And, Jung actually has, I believe it's Jung who actually has a quote that says, uh, the most impactful thing for a child is the unlived life of the parent. And so doing your own self work, um, dealing with your own fear of uncertainty, um, managing your own experience with doubt um, is going to be the best way to be able to meet your children where they are. Uh Um, because I still see my therapist every month, you know, I Uh still, um, even though I went to school for a long time to learn about, you know, psychology and people and the way we think and the way we, we make meaning, I don't know what's going on either half the time with my own life Uh and, Uh and my own kids. Um, because every human has a, a very unique experience and the best I can do is to try to create a space where my children have a secure attachment. Um, and that can kind of lead, I guess, lead us into maybe talking about how attachment, our attachment style is directly correlated with how we experience God. Yeah. Go for it. That's great. Okay, cool. So attachment style, I feel like is like really popular now. It's probably like all over TikTok and, and, and everything. Um, so most people listening are probably a little bit familiar, but attachment theory is basically that 
as we are developing relationships with our caregivers at a very, very young, young age, uh, we usually develop, you know, one of several attachment styles. And that's the way that we expect others to react to our needs. Mm. Um, so if you have, for example, a secure attachment, which is the goal, um, a caregiver who establishes this secure attachment is going to be sensitive to your emotional needs. They're going to be responsive. They're going to be accepting. So they're not going to say, no, that doesn't hurt. No, you're not sad. No, you're not. And just kind of try to explain away the child's experience. They're going to say, oh, well, I'm really sorry that you're sad. Or I'm really sorry that that hurt. Um, And it's going to be consistent responses to the child's needs. So the child has secure in knowing that the parent's going to be there and the parent's going to accept them and the parent's going to love them even if they make a terrible mistake and they do something wrong. So the children who have the secure attachment, they're more likely to explore. They're more likely to leave their caregiver and go play in the playground and go meet other kids. They're not looking back and checking that mom's there or dad's there or their caregiver is there, whoever their caregiver is. Um, they're just kind of free to, to go explore the universe and, and they're secure in knowing that somebody's going to be there to catch them if they fall. Another type of attachment is anxious, insecure attachment. And the anxious, insecure attachment is usually developed when response to the child is inconsistent. So it's very sporadic. Like, Sometimes the child is met with care and sensitivity and responsiveness, and sometimes the complete opposite, sometimes not met at all. So the the child ends up feeling like, well, I'm not really sure how my caregiver is going to respond, and that makes me scared to go play into the playground, and makes me scared to explore, makes me scared to ask questions, and it makes it can make the child more clingy. So the child maybe has a little bit of separation anxiety. Uh, The child wants to stay really close. Um, They can sometimes be real, have a lot of emotionality because that emotionality tends to bring attention. So engage in a little bit more of the negative attention because it brings the caregiver near. Um, And so this child is going to be, again, it's called kind of anxious, insecure, not really exploring as much because I'm not sure how my parents going to respond. And then the last one is avoidant attachment or avoidant insecure. With this one, the parents tend to really struggle with accepting and responding sensitively to the child's needs. So -hmm. there's a lot of like minimizing the child's feelings, rejecting the child's demands for whatever the child needs. Um, doesn't help the child if the child is doing something difficult and needs help on a task. It's like, we'll figure it out. You can do it yourself. You don't need, you know, my help. So then the child learns, well, I'm not going to get help from my parents. So I'm just going to avoid them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to avoid creating attachments because people aren't there to help me anyway. I got to figure this out myself. So the avoidant attachment ends up, the person ends up becoming very self reliant, um, not really. Um, being able to ask for help, shutting down their emotions, 
um, probably, you know, internalizing and intellectualizing a lot of their emotional experiences um, just because there wasn't anybody that would catch them if they fell. And so there is an avoidance of relationship with other people. So we see that these attachment styles that we have with our early caregivers actually reflect the type of God that we choose to have a relationship mm -hmm. with because it tends to be the attachment style that we're comfortable with. It's just what we know. So if I know that my caregivers, people who love me the most, are inconsistent, sometimes they love me well, sometimes they burn my house down, <laughs> that's the God I'm going to serve because God's going to be reflective of you know, that lens that I have. So the way I read, for example, scripture, it's probably going to be based on this lens of an inconsistent God who is sometimes loving and sometimes uh, kind of, you know, destroys entire nations of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, you know, if you have an avoidant attachment, um, this is going to be somebody who doesn't expect anything from God, doesn't mm -hmm. want to ask God for anything, right? Uh, is just happy to kind of believe that maybe there's a, that there's a God there, but isn't really engaged with God. Is just kind of like maybe going through the motions, but there's not so much like a relationship there. Mm -hmm. And then the secure attachment would be, I would say, more of the healthy, obviously the healthiest version of connecting to God, which would be believing that the source is responsive and accepting and loving and so the way you read scripture is going to be with that lens of love and acceptance and grace and all of those kind of things but that like makes it real muddy it means the the bible basically ends up becoming a rorschach it's an inkblot test mm -hmm. for our own lens mm -hmm. and our own experiences and our own attachment styles and so a lot of times when people tell me who they believe god is I feel like they're just revealing themselves to me, right? Mm. So they're revealing to me something about their childhood, their experiences with their early caregivers or their experiences with, you know, their relationships with people. Um, and the goal is just kind of get curious about why just people don't come to their experiences of God's lightly. Mm. These are often passed down to them through multiple different avenues. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That was really good. I'm like, I, I know it's a lot to kind of uh, um, take in. I will say there was a an article written in December 2021 um, by Matthew Henderson, uh, and it's called Attachment to God in Psychological Distress. Um, and they actually um, looked at a previous article that was um, done in 2010 uh, by Baylor Religion using a Baylor Religion survey, and they wanted to look at how attachment to God leads to psychological distress, or if attachment to God helps psychological distress. And what they found is your attachment, what the type of attachment you have to God, is going to lead to either helping your psychological distress or it's going to create more psychological distress. Mm. So for the people who had a secure attachment, 
with God, it helped them tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, they were able to manage the stress better in their life. For the people who had an anxious attachment with God, it increased the distress that they had in their life. So we should be mindful, I think, of people who experience religious trauma and people who have had anxious attachments throughout their life and in turn have anxious attachment with a God. Um, Those people, you know, deserve to be able to make choices on their own about their own psychological health. And if their psychological health says you don't need religion, um, then that is what they should do, Hmm. you know, Um, because any spirituality should lead to psychological well-being and psychological health. And if my religion doesn't lead to my psychological health, then I probably need to figure something out. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, just thinking back to my own past, uh, definitely anxious attachment is mine. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, wasn't doing well um, early on and, uh, you know, had this kind of idea about God and, and being, you know, angry or but also loving but it's just all you know all mixed um and very confusing and you know making me think i need to be this great amazing perfect person who does all the stuff to make god happy um and and then in grad school be not doing very well mentally and emotionally and 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 trying to get closer to god to improve on all that and it was more just, uh, is like, I had to get out of my mind and just into just trying to feel, feel love and feel love in God more. And I think it was helpful, but it definitely took my awakening experience and that, and that kind of overwhelming feeling of love from God in that experience and realizing he's not this angry, judgmental God. And then also kind of reconstructing my idea of God is, is being within all things and, and, and not in just this little box of Christianity and being within all people that, um, helped me form a better relationship with God and a a much healthier one to, to go on in the future. But, but that took many years to really process and formulate in my mind. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think that's the most important thing is that in terms of psychological health um it's a it's a process you know Mm -hmm. um religion is one of the most psychologically impactful things that we're gifted often Mm -hmm. you know and i say gifted because we didn't choose it a lot of times Mm -hmm. right it was just kind of this is what you're going to believe um and it could take a long time to figure out your own personal connection to the divine, to the source. Um, And I just want people to give themselves time to figure it out. Um, But the the thing I tell my kids, um, because my kids sometimes ask, you know, well, what about these other religions? You know, because we're teaching them a bunch of other ones, but then they have an internet, so they learn about Mm -hmm. all kinds of, you know, different religions like um we laugh about what is it the pasta spaghetti um pasta the sp- flying spaghetti monster oh, religion right. or something like 
so they're like, well, how do we know, like, if a religion is something we should get into? Like, if they choose to leave Christianity and they choose to take it on another religion, how are they going to know that that religion is, you know, beneficial? And I think one of my favorite um, verses in the New Testament is um, actually just talking about love, right? Love is patient. Love is mm-hmm. kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also like the fruits of the spirit, like goodness, joy, yeah. peace. I don't think that you need like, you know, to follow Christianity, to be able to use that, those two mm-hmm. verses as just kind of like frameworks for right. whatever belief I have, whatever thing I'm going to follow, however I'm going to make meaning in the world. Does it lead me to love this way? Does it lead me to kindness in this way? And if it doesn't, then I probably want to find something else. Mm-hmm. So I give, I just give them a baseline. Like, is your belief going to teach you to be patient and kind and loving and joyful? Then great. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. I want to learn about that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I talk with, with some Christians and, and, you know, one thing they say is, you know, Jesus on the cross, that's like fundamental. Um, but then, I talk with some people and I think one interpretation of the cross and what Jesus did is uh, helping us come into better relationship and understanding of God that we don't, that he's not this angry, vengeful God and he doesn't need sacrifice to him to make him happy, that he doesn't, that he loves us the way we are and that we all can have his personal relationship with him. Um, and yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, I think the the Jesus story for us and the way we talk about it with our kids is when we look at Jesus, the Roman government murdered him. Right. And even if you don't believe Jesus is God, which we tell our kids, I don't know. Right. I don't know if Jesus was God. I don't know Mm -hmm. that, but his story is so impactful because this man was murdered by a Roman government. And even as his enemy is murdering him, he prays for them. Uh-huh. And that is something that is incredibly difficult to do. Um, right. And that is a beautiful story about extreme suffering and having grace through that suffering. Uh-huh. And so we use that story to teach grace through suffering grace Mm. for the people who harm us um and grace for ourselves when we are fearful in that suffering um and so that's kind of how we think about the story of jesus we don't teach our kids uh anything about sin or penal substitutionary atonement Mm -hmm. or uh that god crushed the devil or (laughs) anything like that uh when we talk to them about you know, uh, symbols like the devil. We talk to them about, like, as Jung said, their shadow. Uh, Within every person, there is a shadow. And, you know, there is uh, moral good. There is, And so we say there's like this angel and devil on your shoulder, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't think about the cross as another narrative of that. Because there's Jesus... And then there's the angel and the devil on each side. There's the uh-huh. angry robber guy right. on one side. And uh-huh. then there's the the gracious, kind guy who's like, I just want to be saved. Uh-huh. So it's another image of uh-huh. even the, the three crosses is the angel and the devil. 
Mm-hmm. Are you going to be the guy who is just angry at the end of his life? Or are you going to be the guy that's like, even at the end, he wanted good. He wanted hope. He had hope even till the end. And so how can these stories make meaning for us, even if we don't believe in the supernatural part of that story? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's a great visual. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you want to kind of get into, I mean, we have, but just yeah. um, ways that maybe uh, we're growing up and, and just what we're learning in society and about psychology and, and, and how yeah. to raise children in better ways, things like emotional intelligence and self-worth and personal yeah. agency, these types of things. Yeah, absolutely. So I think emotional intelligence, I, lo- I love that you brought that up because that is probably one of the things in when I was doing my internship, um, you know, as I was writing my dissertation, um, one of the things I did a lot during that in- internship when I was seeing patients and stuff, I think emotional intelligence was the thing you're just working on all the time with people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a lot of the emotional, the comfort with our own emotions, it's coming from that attachment style mm-hmm. that you learned as a kid, right? Like mm-hmm. when you were sad, how did your caregivers respond to you? Uh, Mm -hmm. Did they tell you to go to your room and I don't want to see it? I don't want you to cry in front of me. Uh, Did they try to immediately solve your problem for you because they didn't like seeing you cry and that made them really uncomfortable and so they just wanted to go away? Uh, Or were they able to sit with you and let you cry um, and have a moment to handle that emotion? Um, And so our ability to get in touch with our own emotional experience is going to be the most impactful thing for helping our children to navigate their emotional experiences and helping their emotional intelligence. So one of the things I really like to do with my kids, and I recommended this to, you know, a lot of my patients when I was in my my pre-doctoral internship, which was a feelings wheel. Um, You can actually go on Google and just type in feelings wheel um, but it's going to give you your basic emotions, you know, like anger and fear and happiness, things like that. But then it's going to expand that single emotion out into the variety of sadness that you can have and mm-hmm. the varieties of joy that you can experience, the varieties of fear that you can experience. And then you can start to learn, give yourself some language about how to express what you're feeling. Because I feel a lot of it with emotional intelligence is just not having the language to describe what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know you're having an emotion, but you just don't know how to explain it to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that poetry has really helped to expand my own emotional intelligence and the emotional intelligence of my children. And, you know, I always recommend it to people. I, my Instagram, actually, I try to post poetry, you know, every few days, I, mm-hmm. I'll post a lot of quotes on there and stuff. Um, but poetry helps us to expand our consciousness and understanding of ourselves in the world in a way that we just won't on our own. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think reading a lot of literature can help with your emotional intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, reading was, was huge for me growing up. And yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is just getting some language. I think that's a good first step is, you know, getting a feelings wheel. Um, one of the things I do with my kids is we will have family dinner, not every night, but if we do have a family dinner, we'll have the feelings wheel at the table and we'll usually say, everybody pick one feeling that they had today, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, from the feelings wheel. Mm -hmm. Um, and if they want, they can discuss why they had that feeling or what happened, you know, with that feeling. Um, they don't have to if they don't want to. Most of most of everybody does, though. They're like, oh, I was angry because I died in this video game or, mm-hmm. you know, or I was joyful because I caught a butterfly or. Mm-hmm. Um, so just learning to express your emotion in front of other people, practicing that little, little by little. Um, and adults, again, children just mimic adults. They mm-hmm. do whatever the adults do. Right. So if the adult is openly communicating with their child about their own emotional experience, then the child learns to also communicate their emotional experience. So how often is a child hearing, you know, mom or dad or their caregiver say, man, I'm, I'm really upset right now because of Mm. X, Y, and Z. How does mom and dad deal with anger and sadness Mm. and joy and all of those kind of things? That's how kids are going to really latch on and figure that stuff out. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, but I highly recommend the feelings wheel. Getting into you know reading books to your children. Mm-hmm. There's so mm-hmm. many beautiful books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, literature, poetry. Those all help with emotional intelligence mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about uh, boundaries? I know that it's just you know um, it, as kids, you know, it's going to be different than when you're an adult, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you navigate that? Yeah. Boundary. So when you talk about boundaries, do you mean in terms of um, what we allow our children to do and not do or how we allow? Yeah. Them but to also, do? so it's like, how, yeah. How do you parent? Well, not being overbearing, but also not mm-hmm. neglectful, but also teaching right. them to have agency and boundaries yeah. uh, for themselves. Right. That's a great question. Um Man, parenting is complicated. Right? <laughs> uh, I want to tell for any of the parents listening, I do want them to know that there is a psychologist, a psychoanalyst, his name's Winnicott. And his theory basically, he has a, a theory basically called good enough, like a good enough mother, <laughs> right? Um, you do not need to be a perfect parent. Mm-hmm. It is impossible. The idea that we have in our heads as parents about the type of parent we should be is just not possible because we're human. And so the most important thing with parenting in, you know, according to Winnicott, especially is you just need to be like good enough. I think the the measure, and I'm going to be wrong on this. I, I should probably have Googled it, but I think it's only like responding 40% of the time in the same way or something like that. So it's, you know, responding like for secure attachment like when you're the 40 percent of the time that you're responding it's secure you know you're you're doing it you're meeting mm-hmm. them where they're at all of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff um i i would definitely don't hold me to that particular percentage because <laughs> i don't i don't know but i know it's not very high so parents can just like exhale mm-hmm. like you don't have to none of us are perfect at mm-hmm. all 
Um, and it is a balancing act. So a lot of it is trial and error. Raising kids is is just trial and error. There have been mm-hmm. things where uh, we give them enough freedom. And sometimes that freedom needs to be reeled back in. And mm-hmm. we usually figure out it needs to be reeled back in because, you know, an error has been made or a mistake has mm-hmm. been made. And then that tells us that they need some more guidance. And so we give them as much freedom as they can handle. And we don't expect them to make adult decisions. And so, for example, you know, we have internet, um, you know, controls to that are monitored for, for teens, right? So it's going to block any inappropriate sites. Now, Kids are smart. I mean, teenagers are smart. I'm sure they could figure out a VPN and they could hijack and get through and they can do all of those things if they wanted to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, But one of the things we we speak to them, and you'll love this, uh, Kendall, is the way we speak to our children is is the voice and the belief that they have for themselves. And Mm so one of the things we tell our children is, um, you are a person of integrity. Thank you for being a person who's honest, right? Thank you for telling me the truth. You're never going to get in trouble if you tell me the truth. I'm going to try to walk with you through this consequence. You're going to have natural consequences, Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not going to add shame to your Mm -hmm. already natural consequence. And so... Being mindful of these are little humans that are developing and they're not going to have all the answers. They're not going to think logically like an adult. They're going to make mistakes. And the way we talk to them about making mistakes is going to be their inner dialogue as they age. It's also going to be the dialogue that they have for any God that they decide to create or develop or follow. So I try to be very mindful with how I interact with them. We always um, say you, you never, you only learn, right? You don't make mistakes, you learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my husband, actually, he's, he's a cool dude. Um, he always, ever since they were three, four years old, something would happen and he would say, what did you learn? <laughs> what did you learn? Mm-hmm. And so ever since they were kids, their automatic thinking anytime they make a mistake is what did I learn from that mistake and how am I going to implement whatever that was so that I don't do it again? You know? Mm -hmm. So I expect my children to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I do not expect them to be holy (laughs) in terms of the Christian perspective, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's something for us. So we don't take our children to church on Sundays. Um, we do our own kind of uh, Bible discussions. Um, I don't even want to, I guess you can call it a Bible study. It's more a discussion. What do you think this means? How does this have meaning for you? Um, and so our, my kids don't really, their biggest faith community, I guess, was when they were in school Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, and for them, the school, I think had some standards that were like, not 
developmentally appropriate, like expecting, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, children, like nine-year-olds not to roughhouse or expecting children to like, you know, not talk back or, um, which, yeah, of course you don't want Mm -hmm. children to, you need to correct the behavior. Mm -hmm. But I think that sometimes in a very authoritarian Christian Mm -hmm. households, um, it becomes like a power struggle between the parent and the child where Mm -hmm. the, the parent just wants compliance and it's not really about teaching the child how to be a human in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's never really about compliance. It's like, why did my child make this mistake? How was I responsible for them making that mistake? What did I not teach them or not you know how did i fail them here is the question how did i fail mm-hmm. them here and how do i help repair this you mm-hmm. know a mistake so relationships with people and with our children are never about the rupture it's never about the mistake we're going to disappoint each other we're going to fail we're, we're going to do it wrong probably more times than we get it right but the most important thing is how do we repair Mm. show up for the repair be vulnerable talk about the mistakes that you made apologize you know um and and repair Mm. some people avoid the repair because that's too uncomfortable so like Mm -hmm. the next day they just pretend nothing happened and we sweep Mm -hmm. it under the rug and we're all going to ignore the fact that uh this really bad thing happened but that doesn't, that's not repair, right? So you end up having a lot of shame that can come with the parent feeling like they're not good enough or the mm-hmm. child feeling they're not good enough instead of both people sitting together and saying, hey, I failed you here and here's how I could have helped you. And, mm-hmm. um, and so the repair, learning how to repair really is what most people do learn in therapy. Um, mm-hmm. Most people who has struggle with relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, a lot of times it's because they haven't learned how to repair in a healthy way. Mm. So boundaries with our kids is really dependent on mostly how do we repair when they make mistakes, Mm. give them as much freedom as they can handle when they make a mistake, let's repair it and reassess the amount of freedom that you can have at this point in your life. Yeah, man. That's all great. You're just dropping truth bombs over here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think uh, maybe an important caveat is just um, when you say, you know, every child is different. And so, you know, there's not a one size fits all. um, You know, that might be hard for kids as well, because it's like, you know, why are you treating them different than me? So how do you navigate that? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. That's probably the most difficult part as a parent. <laughs> um, the parent that you are for your first child is not the parent you are for your second child. And the parent you are for your third child is not the parent you were for your second child or your first child. So every child has a different version of you because you're a different person with every child. You're now a mom of two versus a mom of one. And you're now a mom of three versus a mom of one or a mom of two. And so the best thing we can do, there's going to be differences there. I, you can, and we see this in the research on birth order. 
um, and how children who are first born have this like set of kind of personality traits that second borns don't have and third por- third borns are kind of unique. I see that in my own children, like my firstborn, I was a new parent. And so I was very worried about having her meet the expectations of <laughs> her grandparents and me and her community and her church. She has to be perfect, right? She's my mm. first baby. She's got to be perfect. Yeah, firstborn. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of stress put on the firstborn. It's like the firstborn has to like perform and it's not even <laughs> like conscious. Parents mm-hmm. don't do it consciously. Like, okay. I didn't do it consciously. It's just, you're just doting over this single child and you want to the best for them. You right. want them to do well. Mm-hmm. That inevitably leads to anxiety for the firstborn a lot of times. <laughs> um, my husband's a firstborn. Um, I think the way he probably, he, you know, I'm not, I don't want to speak for him, but he's very like, uh, internalizes a lot of his worry you know i think for him it was a a lot of just learning how to like stay out of the way so that parents weren't like as you know focused on what he was doing um yeah and and my firstborn my oldest my 15 year old um you know she I definitely know I can look back at my parenting with her and see all the mistakes that I made in terms mm. of being hard on her. I think I, you know, definitely was a lot more authoritarian when she was younger. I didn't mm-hmm. want her like, you know, uh, bothering other people and, you know, making a mess at the restaurant and, mm-hmm. or she's screaming in the grocery store, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, ah, let's get her out of here, you know. Um, and now after I've had all these years of psychology, anytime I see somebody like a screaming child in the grocery store and the parent isn't just like giving them a toy to make them be quiet, I'm like, good job. Like you're doing mm-hmm. great, you know, because children scream. It's just something mm-hmm. kids do, right? Like parents are just doing the best they can. And mm-hmm. so letting children learn how to self-soothe, right? A child screaming in a grocery store because they want a toy and they can't have it, that child mm-hmm. is learning in that moment how to handle disappointment mm-hmm. for the first time in their life, maybe, mm-hmm. right? And to a parent, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Mm-hmm. It seems we assign adult thinking to the child's experience. Mm-hmm. But if we can step into the child's experience for a second and think about as an adult, how you feel when you have like a really big disappointment and then imagine being two or three years old and not having the ability to control it. We can have a little bit more empathy for parents who are in grocery stores or restaurants or on a plane or wherever with crying and screaming and, and yelling children, you know? Um, so I think just, uh, being kind, you know, to ourselves as parents uh, and recognizing that um, we're all going through this process of figuring out what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the best thing we could do is, um, you know, be kind to ourselves. I don't remember. I don't know if I answered your question, Kendall. Yeah, that was good. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to ask about is just what you, what you think about spanking, um, you know, my parents were raised or uh, my parents were around the time of, you know, focus on the family and Dr. Dobson and oh, yes. spanking and Oh gosh. I yeah. got a lot of those. But, we would have but, a but, whole but, 
Right. We'd have a no, whole nother episode if we talked about just Dom's on just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, just on that whole focus on the family. Like, oh mm-hmm. gosh. Mm-hmm. My parents um, did learn that, you know, putting me in timeout was a lot better solution. Yeah. Then- yeah. So the the research is clear on spanking. Uh, the psychological research is clear that it, it does not benefit the child whatsoever. Uh, it does not lead to good psychological health or well-adjusted children um it it's a hard no for me um and i think most um psychologists and and most people in the field of child development will say it's a hard no um mm-hmm. what spank what ends up happening with corporal corporal punishment is a lot of times it's the dysregulation of the parent that leads to the spanking. And so it's the parent who's overstimulated because this child is not doing what the parent wants them to do, or they're arguing, or they're yelling, or they're screaming, or they broke something, or, you know, and instead of figuring out what this child's behavior is trying to communicate to the parent Mm. the parent wants immediate compliance and so you can get the only thing you're going to get with spanking is immediate compliance but -hmm. you're not teaching them anything you're not teaching them emotional intelligence you're not teaching them how to communicate their needs you're not teaching them um, how to engage in the world when they are not getting their way what you're teaching them is you hit people when they do when they don't do what you want them to do um so i would it takes it does take a lot of effort to teach children um and sit with them and try to figure out why are they acting this way why are they behaving this way what are they trying to communicate to me so every behavior is a, is a form of communication and if we can get curious about that, and this is outside of any pathology, okay? Mm-hmm. So um, if the child's been diagnosed with, with some type of, you know, mental health condition, that's different. And, and that's a completely different discussion. But if the child isn't struggling with anything, any, you know, mental health conditions, the behavior is likely trying to communicate something that, that, the, that the child needs or is missing mm-hmm. or is looking for. And, you know, like we talked about earlier with the avoidant or the anxious, insecure attachment, anxiously insecure attached children tend to act out because that's how they get attention from Mm. parents. Right. And so is the child just really want attention? Is the child, you know, what's happening? It's just we got to get curious about what's happening with the child. and. Again, that your ability to deal with a child's emotional dysregulation is going to be directly correlated with your ability to deal with your own emotional regulation. And so for me, I, you know, I had to see children during my pre-doctoral internship. Um, When I go back to complete my post-doctoral hours, you know, um, I don't know how many children I'll necessarily work with because 
most of it, most of the time when children come in, it's parents who mm-hmm. need to learn how to navigate emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's going to benefit the child tremendously. Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. So anyhow, Kendall, um, I think we probably gave the listeners all they could handle. <laughs> Lots to chew on. <laughs> Lots to chew so, on. I know. Sorry. Do I know you have I any real wordy with no, me. No, so. it's uh, thorough. It's, it's, it's good. It's good. It's needed. Do you have any last words of wisdom? Of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the most important thing I, we talked about, you know, earlier is there is no perfect parent and there is no perfect child. There is no perfect way to be or to make meaning in the world. And the most important thing we can do is instead of trying to have answers for all the things is to get curious. So, uh, you know, I just want to encourage people to stay curious, not only about themselves, but, you know, get curious about your kids because they they say some really incredible things if you just let them be curious and um, don't answer their questions for them, Um, you know, kind of try to ask them, well, what do you think the answer to that is? Or how do you think about this? You know, um, I think it has a beautiful way of expanding your understanding of each other and creating a relationship where your children can feel safe to talk to you and ask you questions. So get curious. That would be my, my closing statement. Yeah, no, that's the uh, words. Um, really appreciate, uh, you know, your insight and also admire your humility and um, recognizing the unknown and um, yeah. just how, you know, hard it can be. And um, yeah, just admire that, you know, you give your children um, different religious traditions and um, helping them prepare for the world we live in, obviously, is it, um, you know, being very pluralistic and um, they're going to have to be exposed to that so if they can get exposed to it now in a safe environment, they'll be prepared for it and yeah. uh, help them think critically for themselves and learn to trust that inner guidance while still being able to listen and appreciate wisdom from different traditions and, you know, their parents like yourself and uh, people like that. Thanks, Kendall. I appreciate that. Thank you.